When leaders lack accountability, then they become irresponsible, complacent, and quick to shift blame onto others. Accountability was not much of a watchword in Amos's day. And unfortunately, I don't think it's much of one today either. Which is why I think the message of Amos has relevance for us. First, let me give you a little context. It's hard to understand these words without some context. Um, after the reign of David and Solomon, the united monarchy got divided in half, or in two parts, not necessarily half. Uh, the ten tribes to the north became known as Israel, and they had their own succession of kings. And the two tribes to the south became known as the southern kingdom, or Judah, and they had their set of kings. Um, the time is 762 B.C., just a few years ago. And uh, Amos, who lived in the south, was sent by God to go to the north to prophesy. And he doesn't really have uplifting words to say. I don't know about you, but I'd just soon stay home if that's the case. But instead, he ventures there um, to carry out uh, God's call upon his life. Something fascinating has happened because the, the largest kingdom in that realm was Assyria. Imagine an ark that came over Israel, both to the north and also to the east, their capital being Nineveh. They, Assyria dominated that part of the world for a long time. But through a succession of weak leaders, Israel had, I mean, not Israel, Assyria had... Um, had sort of withdrawn, and that allowed under Israel under Jeroboam to expand its borders, and in doing so became more prosperous, and also it instilled in them a feeling of national confidence. They thought, boy, we're, we're secure. Um, in fact, they thought of themselves as superior to most of their neighboring nations and as chosen and special to God. Now, when you feel that, you feel pretty resilient, and that's exactly where they were. The problem with such self-exaltation is that it starts to cloud your sense of self-awareness and your ability to be sensitive to what God might be saying to you in the present. So Amos begins announcing judgment. He comes and begins a series, a string of judgments aimed at different nations which border Israel. And he sort of bops around, but if you follow the flow of where their location is, you get this sense of these are the nations that encircle um, Israel. And he does it with this most beautiful language, a poetic pattern that sounds something like this. For three sins of Damascus, let's make it four. Uh, so you go, whoa, what are they? Um, and, and so he begins. And after Damascus comes Gaza. So just imagine Damascus to the north, Gaza to the southwest, uh, Tyre back up to the northwest, Edom down in the southeast, Amman 
Moab. And you couldn't imagine how delighted they were that the next nation they named in judgment was Judah. If you're considered a relative of someone and someone praises you over them or, or at least diminishes them, you start to feel like, well, at least I'm not like him or like them, right? So Israel starts to feel like, wow, he's captured all of the nations. And so they did not expect him to keep going, but he did. He next names Israel. And he tells Israel words that they would rather not hear. In fact, in another chapter, he says it this way, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? It's kind of like when someone says, oh, by the way, the boss would like to see you in her office. And you think, that can't be good. You know, your first, anything you imagine, it's like I'm not getting promoted or I would have known about it. They would have told me. So you just imagine the worst. Um, and that's kind of what this sounds like. I had a friend who was a corporate manager and we were talking one day and he he was telling me about his next day, and he says, oh, I've got to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with one of my employees. And I grew up in the Midwest, uh, the Bible Belt, and I had not heard that expression, a come-to-Jesus meeting. And I got ready to ask him what it meant, but then it suddenly dawned on me, oh, he's, that's not good. Um, <laughs> That can't, be, that can't be good news or come to Jesus meeting. That, that's not the meeting you want to be in. Because um, that employee was going was gonna to be basically reprimanded if not given a last opportunity to, um, to improve his performance, his productivity, or his behavior before he was out on his ear. Um, that's sort of what Amos is saying to Israel. And he goes on to say that they should not come as a surprise, these words, because on numerous occasions, God had tried to get their attention and have them pay heed, yet to no avail. If you read through chapter 4, there's this string of ways in which God had done that. And then comes a refrain that gets repeated Here's an example. I withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. And then comes this refrain, repeated five times, yet... You have not returned to me. In other words, God's saying, I did this so that you would, you would give heed or pay attention. Now, obviously, just an act of, of, of um, no rain might not signal that this is from God. And so often in today's world, um, People, people will read the Bible literally, and so they'll hear something like that and think, oh, California's in a drought. This must be God's judgment on California. Or two out of the four visions that Amos has as acts of judgment of God include a fire and an earthquake. 
Again, you would think California stands in judgment of God because we experience those things. But that's reading the Bible literally and making our own correspondence without reading it seriously and understanding what its message is and what it's intended to say. God says through Amos that he does not send an act or a deed, but that he doesn't also send his prophet to make sure they know what that means. And you might say, well, that's what preachers do when they say, oh, this, this earthquake happened because of that sin. And, and yet, I don't think in light of the gospel and Jesus coming, you've got you've to look at those events from that perspective, not from uh, the prophets of old. The prophets of old have their place, but it's not a direct correspondence. And we don't just uh, use scripture to, to espouse our opinions about um, what's happening in the world. God had spared them and given them time and opportunity to repent and change their ways, but they thought nothing was wrong. In fact, their sanctuaries were filled, their religious festivals were elaborate, and the offerings that they brought uh, were in abundance. Rather than suspect something was wrong, they expected God to continue to bless them. Instead, Amos pronounces judgment and announces Israel's collapse, which occurs almost 40 years to the day. Uh, He's pronouncing this in 762, and in 722, uh, Samaria falls to the Assyrians. Last week, Tim Stafford introduced our series and spoke of God's justice as setting the world right, God taking the initiative to correct what's wrong and make it right again. Well, who doesn't want God's justice when we're in the wrong? When we've been wrong or victimized, we want justice. And we hear it in the news almost regularly when, when something's gone wrong, a police officer has shot someone, and the videotape seems to imply they were innocent, and, and you hear the relative cry, I want justice. Who doesn't? And yet, what if what needs to be set right is you and me. It's a different story. Um, what if the ones who need correcting um, includes us? Well, that leads me to ask the question, how do we hear criticism or correction in the form of judgment? Few of us receive such words with openness. Um, it can be pretty leveling. In fact, when criticized, I think most of us follow some kind of a pattern like we become defensive, we deflect the comment that is aimed our way, we blame or accuse somebody in turn so that we level the ground, or we try to rally support for ourselves. Uh, we go to somebody and say, this just happened to me, and they go, oh, to you? No. I'm so sorry that happened. You're, you're such a wonderful guy. He's like, yes, thank you. I, I thought as much too. I'm glad to, 
you're on my side or you see it my way. But such responses are never helpful. They don't get at the problem and they certainly don't, they're not very productive. This brings me to the importance yet again of accountability. And I'm not talking about that kind of outside accountability where some, some group is watching the behavior of everyone else. Or, um, but the kind of accountability that we invite ourselves. And that's what I think the problem with Israel was. Its leaders did not hold themselves accountable. They did not welcome and invite words of criticism or words of correction. And that's what accountability does. It says, and I think it's best done not necessarily in a group like this where we would say, okay, let's all share our foibles and problems. And then we all go, oh, you know. Uh, that's not what accountability is. It's, it's when you're in relationship with people who want your best, who, who want what God wants for you, and they're willing to tell you the truth. And it's, it's saying to them, hey, I want my words and my actions to line up. And when they're incongruent, incongruous or they're not lining up, there we go, um, then I appreciate it if you tell me. Are you willing to say that to somebody? If you see what I say different than what I do, then please say something. Or the thing I'm most responsible for in my role, if I start neglecting that, would you call that to my attention? See, that kind of accountability, the self-accountability that invites it, is what leaders should do. That's what makes for a healthy organization, a healthy work environment, a healthy community. When accountability is something we take responsibility for. Um, imagine if Jeroboam had listened to Amos as God's word calling him into account. It might have gone entirely different. Instead, Israel's leaders negated Amos's words and accused him of speaking conspiracy theories. Does that sound familiar? Amaziah, the lead priest at Bethel, sent word to the king about Amos saying that he was uh, committing acts of treason with his prophecies. Well, let's take a look at the primary offenses that Amos leveled against Israel. And I'm going to consider them as three. And I know some of you are going to go, but wait, weren't there four? Hopefully you were listening. Um, the first one, and they're interrelated, was with prosperity came a social stratification of stark contrast between the luxury of the rich and the misery of the poor. Does that sound familiar? The economic gap of the haves and have-nots. Israel's 1% lived indulgent lifestyles at the expense of people who were being exploited economically. Here's how Amos captures it in one, in one um, place. They sell the innocent for silver 
and the needy for a pair of sandals. That was from our passage read. And elsewhere, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. You skimp the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. You sell even the sweepings with the wheat. So after the wheat and chaff have been separated, they would scoop some of the chaff back up with the wheat so it weighed more and cost more. And, it, and yet it ruined the, the bundle. And yet that's how they were, they were um, gaining an economic advantage. The second area that Amos criticizes is that the courts were corrupt and favored those with money and power versus those who most needed justice. He, he stated, You hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You deny justice to the oppressed. Of all places where righteousness should bear fruit and justice be upheld, it should be in court. How the weak fare there is the acid test of a society's soul. If the weak aren't looked out for and cared for, then, then where is justice? And then finally, the third is the incongruity of their religious life with their daily communal life. God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Where faith is not manifest in deeds of mercy and justice, worship of God becomes unacceptable. God does not hear the praise of a congregation that is also deaf to the anguish of its neighbors. If justice and mercy are intrinsic to God, which we know they are, then they must be intrinsic in our worship of God and what we do when we leave here how we live on a regular daily basis. People of Israel lacked the conviction which governed the practice of Atticus Finch, that unpopular defense lawyer in the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. You may recall he, he decides to defend an African-American man who he believes is innocent um, and falsely accused of having molested a young Caucasian girl. But the whole town has already found him to be guilty and, and cannot um, abide the fact that Atticus is on his side. And even his own daughter begins to uh, roil under the, under the way she sees her father being treated in the town. And then it's starting to have an effect on her brother and herself. And finally she says with exasperation to her dad, why? Why are you doing this? And listen to his answer. I knew if I didn't help this man, I could not go to church and worship God. In one sentence, he summarizes the message of Amos. That if you're going to claim to be someone who is on God's side, then you need to be on the side of you need to follow God's heart and be on the side of people God cares for. 
and that's the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, the underserved and oppressed. It's, God, it's a God-given obligation of leaders to respect and protect the vulnerable and the powerless. And I would say Christ has called each of us as followers to be such leaders in this world. God's covenant themes of justice and righteousness are the primary duties of God's people. And while we might excuse ourselves with the thought that we don't always know the condition or needs of our neighbors, I think a passage like this one in many of the ways Jesus speaks teaches us that the heart of God demands we find out, that we investigate, that we listen If we worship a God of justice, compassion, and mercy, then we must be a people who readily offer as much to others. In an article in the Washington Post at the end of last year, the article reported how the wealthiest 1% of American households owns 40% of our country's wealth, which is more than the bottom 90% combined. That's not only an injustice, says Amos, but that also is a major factor in whether our economy thrives or not. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, such an inequality is bad because it knocks down as many as five percentage points of economic growth. I will tell you right now, I'm not an economist, and I don't understand the theories of economy, so please don't hear me as criticizing something as politically motivated, okay? But the whole notion of the trickle-down economy, to me, um, just the word trickle has a problem to it. Because if you're at the bottom, you may not even be realizing any of the trickle. Uh, it just sounds wrong. And I want you to hear that word and think of that image compared to, the, to what Amos has to say about this gap between the haves and the have-nots. And by the way, if we say, oh, well, I'm not ultra-rich, so he's not talking to me. In terms of the world's economy, we are. Every American is wealthy compared to the, the rest of our world. Compared with this trickle image, hear Amos's words of the force of a river that cascades over a mountain, much like a waterfall or a, a fast-moving river, whereas if you stood in front of it, it would knock you over. Let justice roll on like a river, Righteousness like a never-failing stream. In a land where people would go from town to town to try to find water and quench their thirst, Amos says, this is God's justice. This is what it looks like, what it feels like. This is what it should sound like. So what this tells me is we don't want to be justifying any system that oppresses the poor and that where we think we 
understand it or have uncovered it or uh, are aware of it, that we do something, that we speak up, attempt to correct it. Where we see racism and economic discrimination, we, we use our voices to make a difference. We choose to volunteer and serve with an organization like Catholic Charities that challenges poverty, cares for seniors, and counsels immigrants. People who Tim pointed out to us last week are the most vulnerable. And we learn to spend time with people who are more vulnerable and lack resources, which you and I just take for granted. In other words, we engage with the world God calls us to serve. Well, judgment is not the only word Amos brings. He also signals some hope. But listen how he couches it. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps, see, there's the hope. Perhaps the God, the Lord, God Almighty, will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Not you or me, but our descendants years from now. That's the hope Amos has to offer. Thank goodness we, we're not in Amos's time, uh, but we're on this side of the cross and of Jesus' message of the gospel. We know what it means to, to have hope. Might we live that way and offer justice and righteousness and live lives of integrity so that the gospel might be known wherever God sends us. Amen.